Welcome birders, this is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banter Podcast, where birders talk birding. I've had a terrific week. I had Paul Bannock on the Bird Banter Podcast this week. He's my guest this episode and really enjoyed talking with him. I think you'll enjoy hearing his story. He's best known for his photography and his books about owls and woodpeckers. He has two uh, previous books out, Owl, A Year in the Lives of North American Owls, and uh, his other book, The Owl and the Woodpecker, Encounters with North American's Most Iconic Species. They're great photography uh, books, as well as really good life history books of owls and woodpeckers. So I think you'll enjoy those if you get a chance to see them. Uh, but are you definitely going to get a chance to hear from Paul today? He is a compelling guest. I love his conservation stories, his photography stories, and some of his just thoughts on life. He's a pretty interesting guy. Really enjoyed this. It was sort of, I think, um, you know, worked out right uh, that the day after I uh, sat down and talked with Paul for the podcast, I decided I would go to Seattle and see the snowy owl that's been showing up on Queen Anne Hill. So Mary and I, on Wednesday, took off for Seattle. She goes up sometimes on Wednesdays to visit with her grandchildren, and uh, so we got a chance to see, she got a chance to see them. But on the way, we stopped at Queen Anne, and sure enough, there was a crow, uh, you know, at doing its mobbing behavior and led us right to a snowy owl on the rooftop of a house right on Queen Anne Hill, uh, first snowy owl of the year. And it's funny, it happened at a time when eBird was down. A lot of you know that eBird went through a two-day or almost two-day outage when the whole site was down for improvements and repairs or whatever they were doing. Uh, and uh, birders were without eBird for two days. Oh, life without eBird, how can that be? So I thought that snowy owl was my 300th Washington species of the year. I had forgotten uh, that last winter on our freeze-a-thon, Ken Brown uh, leads a, an ABC birding club freeze-a-thon trip each winter to the north central Washington up in the Okanagan, and we did have a snowy owl on that trip. Time had gone by, and I had forgotten about that bird, uh, and so I was thinking I needed one more bird to get to 300 species for the year in Washington, which has not been easy this year. I haven't taken a pelagic trip, and Nia Bay's been closed down. Those are two ways to get some of the tougher birds to find in Washington, uh, you know, relatively reliably. And so I've been struggling to get my birds this year, but I thought, oh, good, I've got 300. I was happy. I put up a Facebook post to that effect and just all excited about that. And sure enough, eBird came back up and it was still at 299. Uh, so a little egg on face and shows how, how reliant birders, how reliant I, I guess I should say, am on eBird to keep track of my lists. Anyway, it was good. I managed to get 300 today when I went out and got a white-throated sparrow over at the uh, Edmund Marsh in DuPont. Uh, but that was cool, too. Uh, so I got my 300, just not the way I thought I was getting it. Uh, yay, eBird. Thanks for coming back. Anyway, uh, I think you'll enjoy hearing from Paul Bannock on the Bird Banner podcast today. I really enjoyed talking with him and hope you enjoy, too. Help me welcome Paul Bannock to the Bird Banner podcast, episode number 82. Paul, welcome to the Bird Banner podcast. Thanks for being on with me today. Thank you very much, Edward. It's a, it's a pleasure. 
Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, I, as I mentioned to you before, I first saw your work uh, at with the Traveling Burke show, I think, that was in Bellingham. And it was just, my wife and I went to the show with some good friends, and we thought we'd stop in for 10 minutes. And I, th- I don't know how long we spent, but it was so cool. These huge photographs and wonderful life histories and just a spectacular photography. I just loved it. And I always thought, gosh, this guy is really good. It was really fun to see. And I know you've had lots of books and, and other shows and things since then. So sort of tell me your story, uh, kind of gr- your you know, naturalist birding story growing up and, and how you got into photography and how did all this come to be? You bet. Um, you know, my, my story is perhaps, um, perhaps unusual, perhaps not, but I, I'm a fourth generation Seattleite and I grew up as one of 13 kids, I was the 11th of 13 and the, the seventh of eight sons. And the family is very much oriented around sports. And although I played sports, I didn't find the same peace in it that some people might find. And instead, I found my peace and I found my grounding. And quite candidly, I felt the most myself when I was lost in nature, when I, when I, when every moment, when every hour lasted a moment and when I was seeing or discovering something new. And it was, it was intentional to put myself in these places, but was it was unintentional to find so many mysteries. And it was unintentional to invest so much time in, in trying to understand all the varying interconnections between one species of animal and another and a species. And then as I, as I, as I try tempted to find the different animals a second or third time, then I began to realize the importance of certain species of grasses and, and the, uh, the ecology of a puddle or a pond or a lake or a stream or what kind, whether there was a canopy or not a canopy and what was a species of of tree that whose leaves were falling into the pond and the seasonality um, when things showed up, when things called, when things mated, um, how the an ice on the top of a pond might impact life, and how a rain spell would bring certain things to the surface, and how subtle changes to that fabric that enabled all of these life forms dramatically altered the both the quantity, the quality, and the richness of those life forms. And it, it took me away. Um, so I, I started to notice as the area around me, I grew up in Bellevue, and as the area around me became developed, they started to drain the wetlands that I so loved and I didn't really realize what would happen. I knew that the noise was encroaching upon me and it wasn't as beautiful, but then I started to notice the variety of life that I saw was, was dramatically less and that concerned me. So I started to try to tell people through stories and I drew pictures, but I was not a very good illustrator and I was no Tony Angel, let's put it that way. And um, I started taking pictures. My father was a communications manager at Boeing, and he used 
cameras and audio and stories to do his work. So I instinctively thought, I need to do a better job capturing what's happening so people will pay attention. So I um, was able to use some inexpensive cameras of the day. And at a very young age, I was in grade school, started photographing and trying to improve my ability to raise awareness about what we were losing, what was at stake. And through over time, I've really geared my photography to being real. I don't edit photographs. I don't add things in or take things out because I believe that nature's best beauty shows through her imperfections. And I want to include those imperfections. And if the photo is not compelling, then I don't want to blame nature because that's what I'm trying to protect. I'll blame myself. I'll take that responsibility and I'll get better so I can do a better job of, of showing what is really out there and having people respond to the authentic, the authentic natural world. Um, but, uh, you know, in my first science projects in grade school, I would do books and initially I'd draw, use illustrations and, you know, for, for um, English projects, I'd do photo essays uh, using my photos. And, you know, as I, as I got a little bit older, that love of nature still um, buoyed my spirits and my greatest energies on my spare time were, were put towards gaining more of those experiences. But in high school, the reality also hit me that being one of 13 teen kids with a single earner father, I had to also be practical early on, or I felt I had to be practical. So I got a degree from the University of Washington Business School and um, graduated and worked in computer software. And on my free time, I improved, I invested in my skills not so much as a naturalist, I did that instinctively, but my skills as an outdoorsman, teach, learning and teaching kayaking and navigation and snowshoeing, wilderness travel and, and teaching others to refine my own skill and allowing myself, giving myself the tools that gave me more confidence in the most remote wild places because those are the places I enjoyed. And while I was still photographing at that point, my photographs were varied, cultural, landscapes, and also nature, as well as people. And um, I had a, a pretty rewarding career in computer software because I was one of the original employees in a company, first 75 employees in a company called Aldous Corporation, and we invented desktop publishing which allowed people for the first time ever, people who did not own a major press could get their word out. Yeah. So for instance, um, PageMaker and Desktop Publishing were able to, were enabled Boris Yeltsin to stop a coup in Russia. And so we felt, and I felt like we were changing the world, but it did sync in a small way with my history as a boy in that my, my efforts with regards to nature, we're getting the word out. And here we are working on tools that were amplifying small voices. Mm -hmm. And I still had a small voice um, relative to the message that needed to be communicated. But after about, you know, about, uh, I'd say, 
But actually, no, it was after 10 years in computer software, Aldous had a sabbatical program where you, no, wait, it was after, no, it was after five years, I guess. And we had a sabbatical program where you could travel, excuse me, you could do anything you wanted for six weeks and you'd be paid full time during that six weeks. Of course, mm -hmm. your travel wasn't paid, but you were paid during that time. And growing up, one of 13 kids, I never had more than a week vacation <laughs> at a time. Yeah. I had six weeks and I delayed it for a whole year, which is the longest you could delay it because I could imagine not working. And then I took that trip and I backpacked through Scandinavia and Russia with me and my camera, joined by a, a good friend of mine at the time for part of it. And I really, it, it forced me to look more inward. Um, sometimes when we're busy, we, we look outward instead of inward. And when I looked inward, I, and when those thoughts and those feelings were reflected off of the people I was meeting in, and among very poor people in Russia and, and Finland and, and traveling around, it really reminded me of the richness in life that I was missing in my, in a job that really had me working from, you know, really before sunrise to after sunset every day. And I recognized that there were things much dearer to my heart that I wasn't addressing, namely this life passion, perhaps mission to educate about the threatened and declining natural world. So I decided I needed to move closer to that. And um, I started working on thinking about what would be my next job, what would be my next career. And um, later went to Adobe and Microsoft, but I was still trying to get closer to where I wanted to be. And the long story short, I was able to, I knew it was either education or the environment. Mm -hmm. it, it would, it would involve those two things, but I never imagined it would have um, quite come together in the way it did. I started working for conservation organizations, first with Islandwood and Adam Bainbridge Island, and then with American Rivers, and now with Conservation Northwest, which is a, a very much a passion and intellectual fit. We work on, on connecting wildlands uh, from both the Olympic Mountains to the Cascades, the Cascades to the Canadian Rockies, the Cascades to the Coast Range, large areas of shrub steppe. So we connect where the wildlife lives so wildlife can move freely, interbreed, and move in response to changes in their habitat, in the climate, on the situation on the ground. So it's incredible work. But during when I started at Conservation Northwest, or slightly before that, actually I should go back and say, when I started my nonprofit career, I was working more sane hours, you know, working more or less, you know, eight to six type of situation. Sure. And my photography started to blossom because I could put more time into it and I made the time. And for these last several years at Conservation Northwest, I now work for them nine months a year and I'm in the field three months a year, just okay. in the field. And I spend much of my free time studying wildlife and habitat and conservation and trying to create books and give programs around the country, in some cases around the world, 
that help raise awareness to the same types of things I was trying to raise awareness about as a young boy. What's at stake? What can we do? And then the reason I, excuse the pun, focused on birds has been because the great diversity in colors and sizes and shapes all tell a story of adaptation. And they help us understand, they help us see the differences in places that may look the same superficially. They beg us to ask the question, why? So in my books, I explore this. So in the owl and the woodpecker, I explore the relationship between owls and woodpeckers, and also between them and unique elements of the natural world. And in that book, and also in my next book, Owl in the Year in, Life, owl in, the, Year in the Lives of North American Owls, in that book, I dig into a specific habitat, for instance, the grasslands. And if we think of grasslands, we have this picture where if we, look at, if we think of treeless landscapes in the middle of the country or in the inner mountain west in the Great Plains, we have a picture of sameness, a flat brown landscape with you know, some shrubs sticking sure. up. But what the owls help us see, what the several of species of owls that have adapted the grass and adapted to these treeless areas help us see, is they don't live in every one of these places. They live in specific parts. And they may even hunt in a common area, but then they will retreat to a specific niche to have their nests or find their food or find their shelter. And these niches are so specific that only one of those species will live there. And that helps us animate a landscape that people may not appreciate um, the diversity in. Grasslands worldwide are arguably the most threatened and overabused, I guess you could say, habitat in the world. Uh, they, they unfortunately happen to be the place where it's easiest and most profitable to uh, grow crops. And, and so they're terribly threatened. Yeah. And I'll give you an example, Edward. And, and you're right. Um, but if, you, if we look worldwide, the places that are, that are um, most threatened across the world are, first of all, where saltwater meets freshwater. Mm -hmm. or rivers meet the sea, because that's where people like to build cities, but that's also where there's the richest biological diversity. Mm -hmm. And flat, level land, um, <laughs> which, which again, is where there's often a lot of biodiversity. And then the um, grassland, you know, because of the rich, the, the fertility for crops, mm -hmm. which again, gives you great diversity. And if you look at grasslands, for instance, if you were to, if we were to go take a trip and we were to go to say southeastern Idaho, let's say, or even parts of eastern Washington, we may find in in a, a part of shrub step in eastern Washington, we may find we may hear that in this particular part of one county that there is short-eared owl, burrowing owl, east western screech owl, long-eared owl, great horned owl, and barn owl. And while all of these owls may hunt at dusk or dawn out over these grasslands, the burrowing owl needs a short grass area where the landscape, where the land is disturbed typically by badgers and where there's burrows to live in. The short ear, excuse me, the long-eared owl needs a riparian thicket in this open area. 
with dense cover for daytime roosting, typically it's going to be along a creek or a spring. And the short-eared short owl needs tall grass so it can roost on the ground. And oftentimes to have that tall grass, there has to be some moisture and they need a broad hunting area where they can take advantage of their silent flight and to listen for prey moving through the grass. Each of these owls, these three I mentioned, are incredibly specialized. They will never nest side by side or in the same patch of land, but they may hunt. They're moving rodents that others might consider pests, um, inspiring us, adding beauty, but they need something different and they need us to manage. And yes, I intentionally say manage, manage that landscape in such a way that we are aware of what they need in each month. Because it's not just what they need round the year. We don't have to make many sacrifices. So for burrowing owl, we have to leave some prairie dogs or, or in, in Washington, it would be badgers or skunks to, to make their burrows. We need to avoid using pesticides, uh, particularly rodenticides that might kill the rodents, but also kill the owls preying upon those rodents. For the short-eared owl, we need to make sure we're not mowing that grass down during their breeding season. So between perhaps, uh, depending on where you are in the country, perhaps between you know March and June, leave the grass tall. The rest of the year, you don't have to be so careful with that species. And with the long-eared owls, leave some shrubs and leave those magpie nests, and crow or raven nests, corvid nests in general, in those shrubs that the owls can nest in. So each requires a different prescription. So you have to know what do you have on the land, what type of habitat do you have, and when, because we all, many of the lands left for our owls are lands that are being worked by people for their living. And sure. contrary to what many people think, we don't have a choice between, there, it's a false choice to think we have to choose either owls or any wildlife and a strong economy. We can have both. We just have to be educated. And that is the objective of my books. It's, it's both the celebration, the appreciation, but it's understanding how do they fit into the broader fabric and what can we do to live alongside these animals for their benefit and for our benefit. That's cool stuff, Paul. Talk a minute to how, uh, I remember in your art show, and I think I've seen a couple of your books, that you your photographs tend to just put that uh, issue right front and center. I mean, they, you just, you find beautiful ways to show the person seeing your photographs that you can almost say, oh, they do, that is where they live. That is how they, how they fly or breed or nest or hunt or whatever. Uh, how, how do you, uh, you know, do you think that through or those, do you just take a million pictures and some of them work? How, how does that happen? You know, it's, I'll tell you that early on in my photography, um, as I was learning how to get better and better images, like a lot of people, I made the mistake of getting too close. And birders and photographers both do this, where we, we try to get close to our subject to get better photographs. But what we eventually realize is that the best photographs are when you arrive before the animal arrives. And then you're capturing natural behavior. And um, 
the animal behaves in a way that better integrates into its environment. And the other mistake I made early on is taking too many photos. <laughs> and you, you want to take those million photos, like you said, and, and hope some turn out. And that is a, is a process to learn how to properly expose photos. It's a lot better to shoot in either aperture priority or manual. And that requires understanding light compensation, when to compensate and by how much, both plus or minus, and learning enough about the behavior and habitat so that you arrive before the creature is, not only so you don't disturb it, so but it that you are part of its environment and you can photograph it in natural behaviors. Um, you'll see a lot of photographs where birds look stressed or nervous or they're flying away or looking away and and those those stress out the people looking at them you can feel the tension and there are certain times you want to feel a little tension so for instance in my in one of my latest books snowy owl a visual natural history i have a photograph of a snowy owl on a on a sign warning about a gas pipeline underneath and there's tension in that as there should be. Yeah. But when you're creating beauty for beauty's sake, or when you're creating, um, trying to create inspiration, the tension, you may not want the tension there. So get there before the bird, be part of its environment. For anyone in engaging with the natural world, it's naive to think that the animals do not know you're there. But it's also selfish not to care whether you're changing behavior. So our goal should be recognizing our presence is always going to have some kind of impact, but trying to make that impact as small as possible. And also learn about behavior and learn about habitat and have your goal be showing that engagement. Yeah, your photographs do that. Uh, uh, you know, I, I remember when I saw your show, there's one of the placards beside one of the photographs uh, went into the the you know kind of known but not really thought about by me and I think a lot of birders the fact that I I don't know if all owls but certainly owls in general don't make their own nests they use nests they use woodpecker holes they use abandoned nests of hawks and crows and magpies or whatever uh, they use burrows made by other animals they, you know things like that uh, and it, it, you had a series of photographs that showed uh, you know what the interaction between woodpeckers and owls and it was it was pretty damn cool i have to say thank you thank you yeah that, that to me the the engagement between one one species and, and another um those are just oh, I, I love those opportunities to observe that. Um, I've seen amazing, um, I almost said conversations, and that's that's a nice way to think of it, confrontations between ravens and snowy owls, between snowy owls and arctic foxes, between arctic foxes and eiders, between burrowing owls and badgers, between rough-legged hawks and short-eared owls and between peregrine falcon and snowy owls and between great gray and northern hawk owls and weasels and burrowing owls. And these, these occurrences are rare. You can't really predict them. Uh, you can do your best to set yourself up photographically to take advantage of the unforeseen. 
um, but you can't make the unforeseen happen. I'll tell you, Edward, that I, you know, photography is humbling. And if you're not humbled, you're not paying attention because you, you never, there is no perfect photograph. The, the author of that photograph or the, the, the artist behind the photograph knows what could have been a little bit better. And you're always trying to get a little bit better. And the best photography means you arrive in the dark and you leave in the dark. And that's where most of the best photography occurs. But you need light for photography. And oftentimes I'm asked, so much of your photographs appear in the day, but owls are nocturnal. Why does that happen? Well, you have to be prepared and you have to milk the dark uh, in order to get that moment of light. You, you, you've really got to put in the time. Um, a wildlife photographer who's taking compelling conservation images could never make it being paid by the hour. <laughs> you don't make the money by the hour. You have to do other things. Now, those other things can be all related to photography, but it's not, you, you can't get the payoff. So you have to just love being out there and doing it. And you have to feel that requirement. I mean, sometimes people say, will say things like, you know, um, I applaud you for doing what you're doing. But the truth is, Edward, I don't deserve applause because I have to do this. This is this is what I do, right? It's your calling. Yeah, I just feel like I have to do it. And if I'm not doing it, I'm not honoring myself and my own personal vision and what I think needs to be done. Um, I was going to say something else. Oh, the other one that's funny is you'll spend... You'll have a, an image, a lot of the best images, even though you can't make them happen, you envision them in your brain before they happen. So I may envision a photo and the situation may not reveal itself for years. That, that vision that I had years earlier, may, mm -hmm. I meant years for it to finally reveal itself. And in the meantime, I have to be sensitive to the right elements coming together. So I have to say, oh, wow, that element's there. That, that vision I had a long time ago, two of the 10 elements are here. Oh, man, three of them are here. Oh, my gosh. And this is happening, too. So then you start to think maybe this is possible. So you change three or four or five different um, things on your camera to take advantage of what is unlikely to happen, but maybe could. Um, and you're always doing that. You have you know, 10 or 20 or 30 images in mind and you're changing your shutter speed and your f-stop and your ISO and your support system for the camera and where you are in relation to the subject and the light and what time you're out there and, you know, are you lying down or, or sitting up or high in a tree or, or under the snow, whatever it might be. And you're always trying to hope that these, these envisioned images may break through and give you that fleeting opportunity. So the funny thing is when I finally get one of these images and someone will say, right place, right time. <laughs> exactly. Or you're the luckiest man I know. And it's just, oh my goodness, if you only knew. You can't really say anything, but you chuckle to yourself because there's most photographs are not luck. And yeah. everyone gets it's, luck. 
it's like everything in life. People who are really talented get lucky a lot. People who work hard get lucky a lot. Uh, people who don't don't get lucky so much. You know, it's it's yeah, um, yeah. Uh, it's it's, it's why do why do really good birders find rare birds? Fairly often, and the ordinary birder hardly ever finds a rare bird. It's because they're good and they put the work in. You know? Yeah, and I do think that luck is something that does happen to all of us. Sure, but a lot of a lot of us, because th- this happens to me too. When you're when you're not taking care of yourself, when you're not healthy, I've learned that my photography gets better when I'm healthier too. Mm-hmm. When you're when you're not as healthy, you're not getting enough sleep, or you're not eating properly or you're not at peace and what's going on in your life, you may find that you're not fully present in the moment and you, you your luck came and you didn't even see it. It mm-hmm. passed you by. And you only know that after it's passed. And sometimes you don't even know it passed you by. So I pray for more luck, uh, but more importantly, I pray that I'm, I am alert, anticipating and able to take advantage of that gift yeah if the fastball comes down the middle and you don't swing you don't hit the home run do you yeah exactly yeah for sure uh, so that's cool insight paul i have to say uh that's putting words to thoughts that i've had about you know you know luck and and happenstance and that you wrote you've i have two new books coming out uh yeah. one about snowy owls and one about i think it's great gray owls isn't it yes yes uh, Pick one of those books and sort of walk me through the life history of one of those birds and how you how you uh, captured that in photography and told the story. I, I mean, obviously, wow. I have to condense that, but yeah. Sure. Well, let me uh, start by saying that my last book, uh, which is an award-winning book, is, um, is Owl, A Year in the Lives of North American Owls. And the, the goal of that book was to look at the life history of the North American owl, through several species, but representing all of them. So people get a better understanding, better understanding of all the stages an owl moves through and how that varies by habitat. Okay. By um, broad species. And in these new books, I dig deeper into individual species and their habitat. So for instance, one book is The Great Gray Owl, excuse me, Great Gray Owl, A Visual Natural History. And the second one, which I'll talk with you about, is Snowy Owl, A Visual Natural History. And in Snowy Owl, A Visual Natural History, as in the other book, I look at, first of all, the owl itself. What is, what makes this owl the animal it is? What do you, what do you see? Uh, how does it relate in terms of size and measurements and behavior um, and the obvious things to other owls in North America and around the world. What are its habitats? Uh, How does that habitat vary by season? Nesting habitat, migration habitat, wintering habitat. What animals live alongside it in the habitat? So you'll see photographs, for instance, in in Snowy Owl Visual Natural History, you'll see photographs and information about Arctic foxes and polar bears and muskox, as well as never before photographed photos of snowy owls moving through behaviors that have only been documented by um, verbal descriptions and drawings 
and I've got the actual photographs there of courtship, you know, not just courtship display, not just courtship display, but courtship flight and uh, the various stages in the display, all documented through photographs. Um, the calling, contact calling, as well as advertising calling. Um, discussing migration. Why does the migration occur? How does it occur? Where does it occur? And what are the challenges and threats to the owl? In the case of the snowy owl, it is one of the most vulnerable owl species on earth because its habitat, its nesting habitat is being pinched. It's being pinched and shrunk and it's disappearing because it's being pinched from the south by the boreal forest, which is marching north because of the melting permafrost. And it's being pinched by the, from the, by, on the north by the melting sea ice, sea ice that these owls rely upon for the survival, particularly during the winter. And it's being what, what the rim of habitat left, that shrieking rim of habitat is also being disrupted by natural resource extraction. The current administration is trying so hard to drill on the north slope of Alaska where snowy owls and polar bears are relying upon some of their last remaining habitat. And there's a push to drill and we don't even know that there's really any oil there. So the book covers everything. Get to know the owl, learn where it lives, learn why it lives, where it lives, learns what, learn what the threats are, and see rare, never published images. And all of the images in these books, uh, none of the images in these books have been published in any of my other books to date. Well, that is a compelling story. And these are affordable books. I mean, I, I, I looked on your website, they're like 18 or 19 bucks. I mean, they're not like, oh my God, I have to mortgage the, mortgage the house to get a, get a beautiful, beautiful photography book. You Thank, know? You. Thank you. And several, several dozen new images, which is fun. So I'm excited. I think I, I sent you an email earlier. You thought it might be a spam. <laughs> I said, yeah, I, I decided I was going to buy a, a copy of each of those and give them to my girlfriend's grand, grandsons for, for Christmas. And I said, oh, it'd be cool to get a signed copy for that. And I think it said something on your website about to email here to, for, uh, to inquire about a signed copy or something. Absolutely. And so I, I did that and I'll, I'll pull that off somehow. But uh, anyway, these uh, if these photographs are anything... Uh, like the ones I saw on your show and have seen in your other books, uh, they're, they're going to be, uh, you know, great coffee table books and a really informational read to boot. So I'm pretty excited about getting those. Thank you. Yeah, they're, they're, I'm I'm excited too because the the images are um, among my best images. Some of them are outtakes from Owl uh, images that didn't quite fit, not because they weren't as good, but they didn't fit the theme quite as well. Other ones are brand new ones that I envisioned taking in order to complete these books. And so they're, they're rewarding. So Paul, I'm going to get a little bit off subject. You said you work nine months a year for a conservation Northwest. Tell me a little bit more about, about that organization. Uh, it sounds like it's, it's overriding mission is to develop wildlife corridors. Uh, I mean, uh, maybe that's not the right phrase, but uh, to, to connect uh, large natural areas so that uh, animals can do their natural movements without, you know, yeah, having to pass through a city or something. Yeah, the Conservation Northwest, it's the mission tells the story, and we are an organization that works to protect, to connect, 
and to restore wild lands and wildlife uh, from the, the Washington coast to the British Columbia Rockies. And we, it's both habitat conservation and wildlife species recovery and building resiliency into the landscape. And the way we do our work is we, our work is based upon the science that shows where do the most important species and importance by um, their contribution to the overall ecology as well as um, the degree to which they represent habitats. And we look at those most important species. We look, where do they live? Where are the, where are the areas, the habitat they need to just survive? And then what are the corridors they use to move between those areas? And looking at that corridor, what is the biological path of least resistance between these areas they live using those corridors? And so that work is based upon the assumption that uh, the biological path of least resistance means that appropriate habitat connects two areas. So the perfect situation would be you've got two core areas and they're protected by habitat that's permeable to that particular animal. So there's no roads, there's no fences, it's just habitat to habitat. Now we look for opportunities. So we say, okay, well this habitat needs to be connected in this corridor, but right now you've got a lot of private land ownership. So we figure out, do we need conservation easements in these areas? Do we need to build wildlife overpasses or underpasses? Do we need to do a land swap of some kind, purchasing land uh, or selling land? Um, do we need wilderness protection here? Do we need to sue someone who's breaking the law over here? So we look at all the things we need to do to make those connections whole and permeable. So for instance, if you're driving over Interstate 90, you might see over by, uh, before you get to Clay Ellum, if you're heading west to east, you might see the overpasses over I-90. I have seen those. Do, do those work? They work. And we are behind, along with Department of Transportation and some partner organizations, we are behind those wildlife bridges. Okay. There are both overpasses and underpasses. And they work because they are put along the natural corridors that wildlife historically always used. And they are there's fences to guide the animals towards those specific it looked like It looked like the fences kind of funnel the wildlife onto those bridges. They do. And then there's there's underpasses too. And uh, it's it's incredibly rewarding because when I was a when I was a young boy growing up in, in the Seattle area, I could never hope to see a wolf or a wolverine or a fisher. Mm-hmm. Now all of those are returned to the Northwest landscape, partially because of the work that we've done along with partners to connect up that landscape to make it more permeable for this wildlife. We are also working on building, educating people, landowners to live with wildlife, such as wolves, and working out situations where people can feel more safe with their livestock or in their situation with the animals on the landscape through education, through tolerance building. And we've recovered species like the Pacific Fisher and returned that to the Olympic National Park, to Mount Rainier, to the North Cascades. And it's really rewarding when you see these things working together. For instance, we had video of Fisher using the underpasses over under I-90. So even though our Fisher, that we released the Fisher in Mount Rainier, they used the underpasses under I-90 to get up wow. into the North Cascades, which is incredibly fulfilling. When we first found wolves in Washington, 
there was an attitude of shoot, shovel, and shut up, kill them. So you don't have them mess with your livestock. Well, right now, after that first pack, I believe we discovered that first pack in, gosh, it must have been 2009 or so. Mm -hmm. And now we have, you know, more than 100 wolves in Washington State. And they, there are, there are several packs and the population is increasing. And through work we've done with ranchers, where we help them avoid conflict with wolves, the conflict levels in Washington state, because the work we're doing are, are much lower than they are in any other part of, of the wolf recovery areas. So you look in Idaho and Montana and other areas, there's a lot more conflict than a lot more wolves killed. Very few are lost in Washington state. And a lot of our work involves working with stakeholders in local landscapes to make sure that we are seeing and hearing them and their needs, because it benefits conservation for people to be able to work the land. We can't just you know, lock up all the land and not let people on it. People need these lands to make a living in many cases. So if we consider the needs of people, not just the needs to, to do agriculture or in some cases folks will do ranching, but understanding things like the fear of collision. So, for instance, getting the bridges over I-90 involved working with the Trans- Department of Transportation and making a compromise. Sure. They wanted to make the highway broader. Mm-hmm. And, well, we say, well, if we, if we make the highway broader, then we need wildlife bridges. And we need them to occur in the right places. And the same thing happened in Highway 97, where we're, we're helping b- build um, wildlife crossings um, that, in one case, we helped uh, remove some clutter underneath uh, a, a overpass that allowed, and some fencing that allowed deer to safely cross. Uh, so instead of getting in collisions with vehicles and killing drivers, and reducing populations of ungulates, we reduce the the human mortality and the animal mortality. So um, we look for win-win opportunities so that we can have more wildlife and a strong economy. Well, that is a cool organization. Uh, I'll make sure I put a link to Conservation Northwest as well as to your website in the podcast notes and in the blog posts that I put associated with each episode. Uh, Paul, what do you see uh, going forward? Uh, uh, Are you going to uh, produce a a series of uh, owl life histories uh, or or you're just going to do these two and then move on to something different? What's what's in, in your future as you see it now? Well, my future is is going to be pretty similar to what I've been doing, which is I will look for new opportunities for new books to come out with. Um, I'm regularly speaking. Ever since I launched, really, my first... Now, ever since there was an article, Bill Dietrich did an article about my work in the Pacific Northwest Magazine in 2006. And ever since then, I've been on a nonstop speaking tour um, where I probably have Gosh, over that time, probably have had at least an event a month, and I'm continuing to do that. The events are always evolving. Now the events are around my new books. I have a few other book ideas I'm working on. I'm not sharing the titles yet. They're not just owls, but they all are about how we can, how I can use beautiful images of the natural world to, to educate and motivate conservation. Or and really, I should say it differently to encourage folks to educate themselves and to inspire conservation. And education is a choice. I, 
I can't, it sounds pretty arrogant to say I educate. I am inviting people to come along with me and explore the interconnectedness and the natural world and what we can do to, to maintain and, and uh, protect it. And my publisher for my book so far um, has been Mountaineers Books, either Mountaineers Books, the main arm, or Braided River, the conservation arm. And my, my immediate plans are to work with them in, in producing these kinds of books. Well, that is cool stuff, Paul. I'm sure your fans will be looking forward to uh, new and more, more of your uh, work. Uh, how can someone reach out to you if they want to, Paul? Um, they can, they can e- probably the best is email paul at paulbannock.com. That's P-A-U-L at, at P-A-U-L-B-A-N-N-I-C-K.com or by phone or text at 206-940-7835. And then my website URL is www.paulbannock.com. And Conservation Northwest is uh, conservationnw.org. Well, that is what we need. So I will make sure all of that, probably except your phone number, gets put yeah. in the podcast notes uh, okay. and, and in my blog post. And uh, I am excited to get this up. This is going to be fun. People are going to enjoy listening to you, I think, Paul. Do you have any last things you wanted to mention before we call it a day? Um, you know, I, I, I would say this, that the natural world, one of the challenges we all face is how do we how do we love it, appreciate it, celebrate it, but also give it some space? And I think that um, I mentioned that early on. I took a lot of photos. Now I take fewer. Um, one of the things is to recognize when there's an opportunity to photograph and when we can do it without changing behavior, but also to recognize situations where our presence and the all the the change that has upon our subject is just not worth it and to be able to walk away or to recognize you know i could stay here and it's wonderful to be here but i'm not going to get exactly what i want so let it go leave it alone and move on and hope for a better opportunity another time sounds like great advice for uh life in general paul thanks so much i appreciate you being on today thanks for being with me paul take care Thank you, Edward. Appreciate it. Well, that wraps up the Burbanner podcast, episode number 82 with Paul Bannock. I enjoyed talking to Paul. I've been hoping to meet him ever since I saw that traveling museum from the Burke up in Bellingham with Ron Barr and Linda Barr and Kay uh, years ago. And uh, his photographs are so compelling, but his story is compelling too. I didn't realize he was such an active conservationist. It was fun to hear the stories uh, of his uh, work with Conservation Northwest, which sounds like a terrific organization. Uh, I have to say, he has some really thoughtful philosophy on life. Uh, Some of the things he talked about today are pause for thought. Uh, So I really, really enjoyed hearing it. I hope you all did too. If you have thoughts or concerns or things you want to reach out to me about, please uh, leave comments on the blog post on birdbanner.com that are associated with this episode or reach out to me on Twitter or Facebook and uh, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, So thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding, good day.